0: Something I always talk about, it's taste. The level of taste at which you bring to the table. And if you're lucky, you have a team that has that same level of taste. Because that's really, for me, the most important thing is like, how good is your taste in lighting? How good is your taste in costume? How good is your taste in design?
1: The Marvel Cinematic Universe has dominated the box office and streaming platforms for years, and our guest, Autumn durald Arkapaw has played a significant role
2: in shaping the look and feel of the series. Autumn was the cinematographer for Wakanda Forever, the critically acclaimed second Black Panther film. She also worked on the series Loki, which was released on Disney+, Plus, along with a documentary on the Beastie Boys, and she's worked on music videos for Rihanna and the Arcade Fire.
1: We chat with Autumn about her creative process, including any rules she has and when she breaks them, the overlap between photography and design, and how technology, including AI and pre-visualization, is changing the process of making films and TV.
2: Grab your popcorn. It's time to dive into the show. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned after the interview for a special glimpse inside Automatic makers of WordPress, which powers more than 40% of all websites around the world. We chat with Josepha Hayden-Chomposi, executive director of the WordPress project, about the advantages of open source and what makes Automatic a special work environment. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. We're big fans of Gusto, who make it easy to run payroll, set up healthcare, and other benefits for your business. They've made setting up the HR infrastructure for Design Better a breeze. Gusto's also one of the best design SaaS tools out there. Design Better listeners get three months free once they run their first payroll. Just go to gusto.com designbetter design better. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. And now, back to the show.
1: Autumn Darold Arkapaw, welcome to the Design Better podcast.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: We are honored to have you here. And you've worked on some pretty amazing creative projects. This is part of our creative process series. And the movies and shows you've worked on, like Wakanda Forever and Loki, those are giant productions. But we assume you didn't start there. So maybe you could walk us a little bit through your journey of where you started and how you got to where you are now.
0: I'm originally from Northern California, and I grew up in a place called Danville that's kind of east of Berkeley in the Bay Area. And I think it wasn't until I left Northern California and came to Southern California and spent an undergrad in art history at Loyola Marymount that I started getting into film. And on the weekends, I would make short films with my friends, and I would edit them in iMovie. And so that kind of sparked, I think, movie making for me, just on the side. But while I was completing my art history degree in undergrad, I would do photography as well and always be taking portraits of friends. And then I had this genre course that was something I signed up for that, you know, it was just your requirements to graduate. And I watched Raging Bull and Broadway Danny Rose. And they were just two amazing films I had yet to see. And I had to write papers on both of them. And it just kind of sparked my interest in the fact that, like, there's so many different people and collaborators that go into making a film. And what does that mean? And, you know, what does that look like? And who's behind the camera? and What does that job actually do? And I couldn't really find any information online about it. So I kind of kept, you know, this idea of like, what does a DP do in the back of my head? Because I knew what a photographer did. And then just started on the weekends trying to learn about what that meant. I got a job after undergrad. Someone I worked with got me an extension course at UCLA in cinematography, so I went to night school and did this like semester. And you know, you would do exercises in framing and little lighting exercises on your own at home, and then bring in the homework and go over it with the students and stuff like that. So it was kind of a slow process. And then I ended up going to AFI. I quit my job that I had after undergrad, which was just working in advertising, and then. I started applying to film schools, got into AFI the second time I applied and kind of rest is history from there. But that was kind of my progression. It was a little slower. I was a little older when I went to AFI, I was 27. A lot of people were a lot younger in the program, but that's what led me to kind of want to be a cinematographer.
2: Do you think that was an advantage being a little bit further along in life, a little bit more mature to kind of approach things more seriously or maybe with a different eye?
0: Yeah, I feel like it was the right time for me to go there because, yeah, I was a little jumbled the way I explained it, but essentially I applied to AFI the first time around and I was still at my job in advertising. I worked at AOL Time Warner and I was supporting like a sales associate who was selling ads online for auto. So all those auto banners back in the day at AOL that you'd see, like I would help put together presentations and just auto information. So I started applying to film school, didn't get in because my portfolio at the time was only photography and, you know, it wasn't very full. And I remember getting that interview and the head of the program at AFI, who's been a huge mentor my whole career now, Stephen Lighthill, who was also the president of the ASC. He said, you know what, you don't have enough on-set experience. So that was the reason why they didn't accept me. So what I did was I went out and I got some experience. I had a friend that was a friend of a friend was doing a on the road in America. It's like a TV show, like a documentary TV show that aired on Sundance where we followed different Muslims and different people from the Middle East that wanted to go across America and we kind of tracked their experiences. And I was a camera assistant on that. And that kind of taught me a lot. And I got to travel and see all these different parts of United States. And eventually we did a trip to the Middle East as well. And then I reapplied and had more experience and they accepted me. So I don't think I'd be where I am today if I got accepted in that other group. Career in film is so much about like who you meet, who introduces you to who at that time. And then you get that movie and then that movie accelerates you to getting your next movie. You know, So the timelines are really interesting when you're working in
1: film for sure. You mentioned collaboration, and I imagine you know as you kind of worked your way up the ladder to bigger and bigger productions, the sort of number of people that you have to collaborate increases, and maybe communication gets more complex. On a big production like a Wakanda Forever or Loki, who are the kinds of folks you have to collaborate with on set? Who's on your team, and and who do you interact with?
0: Yeah, I think Loki. It's such a great experience. That was definitely my first big project in my career. Like I had one studio film prior to that, but very, very small in comparison to what Loki was. And I got lucky on that one because all of the department heads that were picked were all just in sync as far as taste and personality and drive to kind of create something new. It was a new platform for Marvel. They had never done that before and it was a new world. So we were creating it from the ground up a character that's beloved and that everyone loves, but the new space that he inhabited was brand new. So it was so exciting to kind of go into these meetings first on and talk about like what the light should look like, what the architecture should be, and production designer and I became great friends. And I always commend Kate. Kate Heron was the director for just choosing the right people that I think all got along really well. And there's so much VFX in both of those projects and SFX, and you're working with props department, and there's a lot of stunts and production design and costume design, and it was a real great jumping off point for me to understand that like your final image only looks that way if you can find a way to collaborate well with others, and you know everyone's working towards the same goal, and when everyone is on the same page, it makes it so much more seamless, and I think the overall product. Season one of Loki turned out the way it did because we were all very like-minded and had a great time. And you can see that when you watch it because it feels exciting and new, I think.
2: How do you communicate your vision? You talked about talking to production folks about what the architecture is going to look like and so forth. But how do you go about communicating that vision? Is it all verbal? Are you like taking photographs? Are you finding source materials as a way to communicate what you want to try to achieve?
0: Yeah, I took that meeting, you know, not being so versed in the Marvel universe, but I was like kind of interested because I was familiar with Loki and I love Tom Hiddleston as an actor. And I was like, you know what, I'm just curious to go see what, what that's like. And I read the first episode prior to the meeting and I had all of these ideas of what I thought it should look like after reading the first episode and kind of, you know, noir references that I had and Blade Runner reference, the original Blade Runner and seven, David Fincher, seven. And I, so I go into this meeting and, you know, you meet various people and the directors there. And so she started putting her lookbook up on the computer. And I swear to you, every single reference that she had was exactly the same references that I had as well. So that does not always happen. That's what was so great. And obviously she was meeting with other DPs, but we hit it off and I completely understood what she was going for. It already was in line, was like how I like to light. And I think You know, in that meeting, it was like she appreciated seeing my previous work where the lighting was a character in the film. You know, I pay very much attention to how actors are moving in and out of spaces and lighting and shadows and stuff like that. So she wanted that kind of vibe for Loki. And so I think when you have meetings like that, you already are on the same jumping off point. You can only excel from there and you're not kind of pushing against someone else who has a different idea. So it was really interesting, like coming to the table with great references that have been inspiring to me my whole career and being able to apply those in Loki and work with the production designer on motivated light sources that he would build into the architecture and stuff like that. So I do always start off with either, you know, main references, which are films or I'm big in photography, so I love presenting photographic references to the director because I don't always feel like it has to be like, we are making this film look like this film. It should just be a feeling sometimes and that can be captured in just a still image. Sometimes, you know, an unknown photographer, sometimes it could be a famous photographer. But I like to start there. And I usually put a lot of those in prep on my wall in the office and director will come in and we'll have meetings and talk and, you know, I can reference stuff on the wall and stuff like that. But yeah, I'm very much like lighting for me is a character. And I think that. I start from there after I start looking at lenses and I tend to shoot a lot of anamorphic. So that's a big thing, you know, that affects the way that I light as well. So Kate, in this instance, if you've seen the original Blade Runner, that was also shot in the anamorphic medium. That was shot on film. We shot Loki on digital, but she was very down with that format. So that was a really good jumping off point for us.
1: If you could for a second, maybe let's talk a, through a little of the technical terms our audience might not be familiar with. And I used to do some commercial photography, so I'm aware of some of this stuff. But I think one thing to talk about too that's really interesting is if you're not familiar with photography, you might think the actual camera and lenses are the most important component. but as you've been talking about here, so much of it is lighting. you can have a relatively kind of rudimentary camera. and if you have really great lighting, you can make amazing images. So maybe talk a little bit about you know the importance of good lighting and also, a few of these terms like anamorphic, which folks might not know.
0: Yeah, I'm very much an emotional shooter. When it comes time to pick any element that's a part of the final visual language or image, it has to come from an emotional place with me. So when I started my career out at AFI, like being in school, that's when I kind of decided, okay, what lenses am I going to test? You know, what cameras are we using? I shot mostly film. And then prior to that, in high school, you know, when I was doing portraiture, we would take photos on still cameras and develop them in the darkroom and stuff. And then growing up, I love 70s films. And so my background and what I love and have a huge appreciation for is film in general. And that has texture and that is nostalgic. And it is emotional for me, you know, when I go to the theater and we watch a film projection. So that's kind of the era that I grew up in and studied at school film. My first projects were shot on film. My first feature was shot on 35 film. And so I'm always trying to, even now when I do more modern projects, you know, for Marvel or something, I'm always trying to beat up the image so that it looks like film that feels very right to me personally. And it feels very textured and emotional. So that is a choice that I make. I think a lot of other people come from a place where they like something to maybe be more crisp and sharp, or they started shooting digital. And if, The image is too blurry or textured, that might not feel right for them. So I think it's nice to figure out early on what you fancy and what you respond to. And I've always just responded to something that has more texture and is, you know, harder to make out and is more dreamy and softer. And so that I'm always trying to achieve on a digital format. Loki was shot digitally on a Sony Venice camera. And What I do is I use a LUT, which is a lookup table. It's something that you apply digitally that kind of gives a layer to the image. Like you would want to call it like a film stock for a digital camera. So some of the references that we have for shooting digitally are LUTs that look like different Kodak film stocks so that you're getting more depth in the blacks and more information in the shadows and more texture and softer highlights, more silvery highlights like you would get if you were shooting film. So that's very important to me. And I think these days, for someone who doesn't really understand that, could compare it to shooting things on your iPhone and then using filtration. Like there's all these different filters that you can use now for your photos to make them look like they're shot on Super 8 or 35 or Fuji or Kodak, you know, stuff like that. So That would be the simplest way to describe what we do on the bigger scale for films and stuff. And I work with a colorist and we kind of dial in the image from there. But I think for me early on, yeah, I just appreciated 70s films. So I'm always wanting to shoot on film, but if the budget's not there and it's better for the whole team to shoot digitally, then I try to make it look as filmic as possible. And I tend to shoot with more vintage lenses, whether it's spherical or anamorphic. I just appreciate lenses that have a bit more character and different coatings that kind of make the image have more interesting flares when light hits the lens,
1: stuff like that. Later in my life and in college, I you know I got into film photography and I still love shooting with, I have an old Leica camera that I shoot with mostly my kids, <laughs> but just that quality of the grain and these other sort of almost like discovered artifacts that you can get from film photography is pretty amazing. And one other thing that I noticed since my career kind of crossed over photography and design for a little while is that there's a lot of similarities in essence to the craft or or some foundational stuff that shares similarities. And I'm just curious about your thoughts, like the importance of composition and in the case of a product, like communicating intent around how you might interact with it. But in your case, kind of Using the way that you're filmed to tell the story, so maybe some of those concepts, and maybe you've noticed some overlap too between, you know, design and photography.
0: When it comes to compositions, and I love design, like as far as architecture in my home and interior design, and when I'm out in the world and I'm looking at things, like I'm big on symmetry. As far as how I construct my images, symmetry is very important to me, and everything I look at on a set or a frame up. I see everything in layers, you know, I have my foreground layer, which is my actor, and I tend to center punch everything. That's just something that I appreciate. And in the format that I work in anamorphic, where you're getting two times field of view. So it's a widescreen image versus maybe something that people are familiar with 16 by nine image, which is an aspect ratio that was created for TV, not really a filmic aspect ratio, but I do appreciate a wider screen image because I just find I want to see more width than I do height. And so I tend to put everybody, the strong character in the center. And you see that a lot in Loki and Panther, but I've kind of always done that. And it's, for me, feels right when I'm shooting that format. An example would be The Graduate. If you watch The Graduate, it's one of my favorite films. There's just so much going on and how that's framed and how people fall either camera left or right or center and layers of information in the background and foreground. And so that's really important to me. And I've always kind of just been OCD about placing things and having symmetry and, you know, making the perfect wide shot and paying very much attention to the context of where the person is in the frame. Because I find that sometimes if you're too much on a close up or you're presenting the actor too close, there's no context where they are in the space or how far they are from someone else. So I tend to like to shoot a wider lens and anamorphic. And there are a lot of close ups in Loki and Panther where you are on this wide, 35 millimeter anamorphic lens, and you feel close to the character. However, you still get the context of the background and maybe five other characters that are a little blurry, you know, 10 feet behind them and stuff like that. So I do pay a lot of attention to that. And I've always been like that. I think, you know, just paying attention to design and architecture since I was little and you surround yourself with it, right? So it makes sense that in your home, you pay attention to light and how you put furniture. And then I go to work and I'm on set and I'm moving the furniture around as well (laughs) and trying to make the image look balanced and
2: feels right. It's interesting, Autumn, how you're talking about, you know, paying attention. Did you ever see Jiro Dreams of Sushi?
0: Oh, yes. A long time ago.
2: I love that movie. And there's a part at the beginning where Jiro, who's this amazing chef, world-renowned sushi chef, and he's talking about a French chef. I can't remember the, that chef's name, but he just goes on and on about how good that guy's palate is, like how good a chef he is. And then he concludes that little segment and says, I wish I had that guy's palate. And really, what he's saying is like, what makes that guy a better chef, a chef that he looks up to, is that he pays attention to the details better than others can. In many ways, you know, we talked to David Sedaris, and all that guy does every day, all day, is pay attention. I'm curious how paying attention has shaped your craft and maybe helped you succeed in your career.
0: I've never really had it posed that way, but it goes along with something I always talk about. It's taste, the level of taste at which you bring to the table. And if you're lucky, you know, you have a team that has that same level of taste, because that's really, for me, the most important thing is how good is your taste in lighting? How good is your taste in costume? How good is your taste in design? And I find that the projects that I gravitate towards, there's a very accelerated level of taste. And that's what causes me to kind of pay attention and react emotionally when I'm like, wow, that was a good movie or wow, the lighting was amazing. or costumes were amazing. The more and more I work and the more jobs I do, I'm just always paying attention to that and these little things that you talk of. The better that you get at your job, and you know, now I've done you know these bigger projects. It's like these things jump out at me constantly. I'll, I just finished a commercial. I was working on a Nike commercial. It's for basketball, and it's interesting. It's like you just become faster at your job. You notice things quicker. You notice things you need to fix on the set faster. And I mentioned commercials because you have to move fast, but smaller amount of time, but big delivery on, you know, product. And I tend to work with the same team. And that also helps me because my team also has the same level of taste as I do. So they're looking out for me constantly because you don't necessarily want to have to micromanage everything that you're doing because you're maybe operating the camera and paying attention to one thing. And then, you know, your gaffer who's in charge of the lighting is looking out for you. And i worked with that person for 10 years and I've worked with my camera assistant for nine years. And so they know how I like to work, which allows me to be able to pay attention to all those little things so much more. And yeah, I think taste and lighting is huge for me because I always want something to look natural, but elevated and stylized. And I think there's a fine line between the two. And the older that I get, I think that becomes so much more elegant and you just start to kind of craft that in such a beautiful way, the more you work. And so as far as palette, I feel like in lighting, I pride myself in that, paying attention to those details and making sure that that's always on point. The lighting looks great and feels part of the story and doesn't necessarily want to be distracting.
1: That idea of taste, it resonates with me. There's this great Ira Glass clip. He was the creator of American Life. And he talks about how it often takes some time for your craft to catch up with your taste. You might develop a pretty good sense of taste early on, but it takes a while. And it sounds like you've experienced this too, where you've become more fluid and more able to like act in the moment on some of the technical problems that might come up, which is really cool. So as far as creative process, I'm wondering, you know, in addition to the things that have factored into your skill set, like your taste and just technical abilities, Are there any kind of rules that guide you and are there times that you break those rules?
0: Yeah, I feel like I'm always trying to break the rules now, I think, because when you have so much structure on narrative, like these really big film projects where you have so many talented and experienced people working with you to execute big ideas and you have the money to, you know, use big equipment and big sets, you know, we're doing underwater and big stunts. It's nice to kind of take a step back from that now that I've done that and approach things more simply, right? How can you make something look amazing with not very much? How can you make something feel natural, decrease what you have on set to make the space feel more real? So those rules I like to break now just for myself, like trying to achieve something a little bit more simply because I spent so many years like doing those two projects back to back you know, managing so many people, being on set for many hours, being away from family, just being very focused on those jobs, that those types of projects can be very stressful and demanding. So it's nice now to have done all that and then go into different, whether it's commercials or smaller indie films, and be able to kind of put that behind you and approach things a lot more delicately and quieter. So I tend to do that. Like, and then in relation to what you're saying is like lighting, for instance, it's like, you know, trying to achieve an effect with less gear, less lights, but still, you know, have it tell the story and be beautiful. Because I'm I'm a big fan of like keeping the set clear of as much gear as you can. And obviously even on big sets, you want to try and do that. Like we shot a lot of those scenes on both projects on, you know, huge stages. And I still light from above or I still have motivated light outside the set coming through windows and stuff so that when the actor walks on set, he or she feels like it's a real space and you don't see a bunch of gear and movie lights and diffusions and stuff like that. So that's one thing that I do pride myself in. And I work with my team on that is I like the set to feel like a real space and not like it to feel like a set. So that's something I try to always do, whether it's a big set or a small set.
2: We'll return to the conversation after this quick break.
3: our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite.
2: Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better, And live healthier if you sit all day at work like most of us do and you've never tried a desk that can transition between sitting and standing let me tell you it's a complete game-changer I often struggle with hip pain that's caused by prolonged sitting and a standing desk has helped me switch up my posture during the workday so I can avoid that pain and just feel better standing while I work it helps me get those creative juices flowing and it helps me focus and stay productive I'm way more alert, which is helpful, especially after lunch. Each standing desk from Uplift Desk is built with solid materials. They have so many different beautiful woods to choose from. They're built to last, and you can customize it to match your space. Plus, you get free shipping, free returns, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will, too. Just go to UpliftDesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 and you'll get 5% off your order. That's UpliftDesk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Check them out. Support for Design Better comes from Gusto, who make running a small business easy. Get three months free at Gusto.com slash designbetter once you run your first payroll. I have run a few small businesses in my career, and each time I've set one up, the prospect of figuring out payroll and HR, it just freaks me out. But then I found Gusto. It's an incredible tool that Eli and I use to run our own payroll here at Design Better. Gusto made setup easy, and they even helped us sort out tax registrations with multiple states. Gusto is a brilliant tool, it's well-designed, and it's incredibly usable. Design Better listeners can get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. Can't recommend it enough. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit crashplan.com slash design better to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited time buy one, get one offers. Let's do a little thought experiment together. Imagine for a moment that you no longer have access to your computer. Say you spill coffee on it, it has an unrecoverable crash, or someone steals it, how much would a total loss of your data disrupt your work and your life? It would be significant, right? This is why you should be protecting all your work with an unlimited backup and recovery solution like CrashPlan. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. I dropped my laptop on marble stairs just about an hour before stepping on stage at a big conference in Europe, and I lost my presentation. I didn't have a backup. CrashPlan would have saved me in that moment. Businesses of all sizes can benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities by as many user licenses as you need, and then you can easily manage them all under one account. Just go to crashplan.com designbetter to sign up for a free trial. Try it out and see what you think. Take advantage of their limited-time buy-one-get-one one offer for Design Better listeners. That's crashplan.com designbetter. Back up better with CrashPlan. And now, back to the show. Adam, I have absolutely no point of reference to really understand the complexity and the mechanics of shooting something as big as Wakanda forever, where presumably there's a lot of folks involved in that. Lots and lots of planning's gone into that. Could you take us through like a day in the life of a project like that? Who do you collaborate with? What are the complexities that you have to deal with?
0: It's a beast. I mean, you're going to war when you're shooting something like that. Mm -hmm. We we shot that for over a year. It's like 130 shooting days. It lasted more than a year because I was involved with Post as well, which is not always the case for cinematographers. Sometimes they jump onto other projects, but I really felt like I made that film with my family. Ryan Coogler, who is the director, is just an amazing human being, you know, number one. So when you can actually collaborate with people that are good people, like first and foremost, and then also amazing filmmakers. It makes it for a better ride because you are giving your everything, you know, months and months of work and being away from family and working very hard. And also it's like that film, you know, we're in position where the lead actor passed away and Ryan had to pivot and rewrite it and still go and, you know, not make the film with one of his best friends and tell this story that, you know, everyone on earth felt so emotional about and connected to. And that's really hard to do, you know, and he did it very beautifully. Like he went into approaching that second round with so much heart and wanting to kind of still tell the story and give people the expression of what he had done on the first one. So, you know, that was hard for me to kind of come in because I think most of the people were the same on the first one, except for myself and AD, assistant director. And so I felt very much like embraced and got along with everyone. And we had such a beautiful team. And so starting there, was great, right? Because you have tons of meetings, you know, and you, your first approach is like, how can I support this director? That's my job as a cinematographer is I meet with the director, we get along, he mm-hmm. expresses his vision to me. And Ryan's lovely because he talks very kind of emotional about like what he's after, like how he would want the audience to emotionally react or the sense of motherhood or these ideas that were very important to him. So taking those ideas and making sure that the lensing and lighting coincide with those big ideas that he's talking about, that people should feel the effect, you know, of these strong women in the second film. So... We had early on calls like that, where it's just kind of loose calls about like what he was trying to achieve and what he wanted the audience to feel. And then from there, you know, you get on the ground in Atlanta and you start having tons and tons and tons of meetings about just logistics. Because, you know, to achieve some of these sequences, it takes a lot of different departments and also all of the underwater work that we did was very new, like for Marvel and also for all of us. And it was very important to Ryan that it feel real and look real because the underwater world is not something that as humans, we've explored deeply. And so no one really knows what everything looks like underwater. So we're taking this concept of what people think goes on in the depths of the sea and we're putting a whole world down there and people are talking and farming and playing and they have costumes on. So it was really complex. So early on, you know, we had a lot of meetings and we decided to do a lot of testing. So those meetings, you know, started to get us to put things in water to see how colors reacted in water, how long people could stand or there and we could get some shots. And we did a lot of wet for wet where we shot objects and characters underwater wet. And then we also did dry for wet and we would shoot them on stage, lighting them the same. And then we would take those two elements and we would give them to Weta who did the VFX for our underwater sequences. And, you know, so they always had a reference for what we wanted in water and how that looked dry as well, because obviously when they're talking, that would have to be in a dry environment. And it was really interesting because that took a lot of time and meetings. And so prep is really just to kind of like lay out all the groundwork so that when we start shooting, problems don't arise because we've already tested them prior and you have to also remember, I think, when we're doing these big sets, like if you look at some of the sequences, action sequences, we have a lot of stunt actors on wires, and then sometimes the real actors do the stunts, so then we kind of have to do various passes. But everything, you know, say the movie is 90% touched by VFX, we still want to have a reference for every single frame and every single sequence, even though it does get touched and ultimately becomes a CG shot. So that can be very tedious, and that probably you know, makes sense for how many days I said we shot because we also had to prolong the shoot because one of our actors had an accident when they were doing a stunt. So yeah, I think it's a lot of managing different departments, working with different departments. There's huge flood sequences in the film. So, you know, miniatures were made to kind of see how water would react with different dump tanks and how that mathematically worked out when they made the city blocks. There was a set where we... Flooded the whole city block kind of as long as a city block and had huge dump tanks. And, you know, we're testing all of that as well. So, I mean, I would need weeks to explain all of this, but if that rant gave you some idea, <laughs> it's very complex. Yeah, I know.
1: It's, it's super interesting. I spent a little bit of my career doing a lot of underwater photography. And so, if you're new to it and you haven't done it before, you don't realize like you have to bring all your light with you essentially because so much of it gets absorbed in the water, especially like in the red wavelengths early on. And I'm curious, like, You know, maybe there's some story around that, but I'm also just from what you just talked about and an actor getting hurt during a stunt. I'm curious if any have any stories about like a high pressure shot, whether that was underwater or not. But you also said that there's a lot of digital effects, but I assume some amount of the shots there's stunts, there's practical effects, there's a lot of a lot of things going on. And maybe there's an interesting story along those lines you could talk about.
0: The biggest thing that we got out of doing all of the underwater testing is like, You have a reference for what an underwater world looks like that's not that great, right? Like, not to name any names, but, like, there are films out there that we know are like, wow, that looks really bad. Like, it looks overlit. We can obviously tell that the person is not in water, even though they're supposed to be floating in water. The lighting doesn't feel real. Your brain is telling you that it's not real. So when you have this huge movie that you know in undertaking this new world that you're presenting the first thing that we're all thinking is like how do we make this feel real even though everybody in the audience is going to be watching it going like they have no reference for that right because unless i guess you're a scuba diver and you have some familiarity with swimming underwater and seeing things and how it works with distance right like light falling off and focus and turbidity and all this type of stuff and hazing in the water like a lot of people don't have that reference so Every single decision that we made and every single kind of test that we ran was always trying to make it feel as real as possible in this Marvel world, right, that people are familiar with when there are different kind of stunts happening down there and very interesting things happening that don't happen in real life. A character with wings on his feet that can swim and fly and, you know, live in and out of water. So all these kind of things, I think, just trying to work with all the departments and making it feel as real as possible. Everyone's just working so hard at like, how long can I stay underwater so that they can get an elegant shot of me in, you know, real water so we can see how my hair moves and we can see how my face looks and leave enough time to light and leave enough time to get like a long tracking shot. So all these actors learn to swim. They spent a lot of time with the stunts department to learn how to Kind of breathe underwater for long periods of time and you know that takes a lot of effort and it's very tedious and safety you know obviously it's very slow moving when you're working underwater with pe- real people and, and safety so for us that was our goal and i'm really proud of kind of the overall look i think of that and you know at the end of the day you have a deadline the film has to come out and you only have so much time for vfx But we worked really hard at trying to make that look as textural and realistic as we could. Everyone was always like an ace in kind of pushing the envelope and trying to do their homework and make sure they could get in the water. Like every actor went in the water, every actor learned to swim and hold their breath. It was pretty amazing.
1: Technology for movie making has been changing drastically, you know, over the past two decades, moving away from film towards digital and all the uh, you know, effects that come with that. And then we have this new wave of these AI technologies kind of heading towards us. What are some of the things that you've observed as far as AI, doesn't have to be AI specific, but some of the tools that you use or some of the tools you see on the horizon and how they're gonna affect your work?
0: The projects, these past ones and the ones before that, like it's hard enough just to make good film, right? Like a good film that has a good story that has great characters and Makes you feel something afterward, whether there's visual effects or not. I mean, that in itself is the goal, right? To make a great film outside of all the tools that you can or can't have. So I'm always just trying to do that. And That I find in this new climate with so much content and so many options of things to watch, everyone watching things on their phone. You know, it was tricky, right? Like I went to see Oppenheimer and that's what I get excited about, you know, is that event of going into a theater and watching something that, you know, the filmmakers worked very hard to shoot on a format that is not easy to shoot on. It's also expensive, but it's what drove me to become a filmmaker, you know, those types of films. So I find that that's really kind of what I think about before I'm starting to think about what new technology is out there. But coming from being a DP of, two huge Marvel things. I mean, we're always working in that environment, right? How best can the VFX look? How prepared can we be? How can we make these sequences be something new or look epic or feel real? Because so many people are doing things that aren't real. And something that I used on Loki is we would use Unreal Engine, which is like video game development tool for our previous sequences. So since we had big budget on those projects, we were allowed to go into prep and use this tool so we could actually see what the sequence would look like. So there's one sequence in Loki, and this is the first time we kind of, Kate and I, the director, utilize this tool, where it's essentially a video game development tool, so you can like input all the information so that you have characters that look like your actual characters, and you can input different logistics for the set and for lighting, for color, everything that you can think of. And then you're able to, in real time, watch the sequence before your eyes in an animation. So that was really helpful when we did the sequence where two characters are running through this part of the city called Sheru. And then at the end, they end up watching this big explosion of this arc. And that, I think, had so many layers of testing. But being able to have that tool and see what worked or didn't work. And eventually we decided to use a cam and we did this oneer that has seven cut points that are, you know, seamless. So we used the tool to find out where those cut points were in our previs and, you know, went from there to kind of execute in real time on set and doing a lot of different weekends where we'd go out there and try and shoot it so we could see where those cut points were. And when those types of tools work for you, it's amazing. Not every project can have that because not every project has the budget, but we also use those for use Unreal Engine when we were doing our previs storyboards for Panther. As you can imagine, it's like a three-hour movie. There's a ton of crazy sequences where people are fighting in the sky and underwater and huge ships. There's explosions happening. And so having that tool and Ryan and I would go in and work with our previs supervisor on what story points Ryan wanted to hit. And then we could see it in real time and talk about it and see what worked. And not to say that we never veered from that on set, but it was nice to have that set in stone. So we had an idea and then you're also communicating that to all the other departments, right? So they have an idea of what you're doing, and what you want to do. And you have to imagine like on these huge sets that, you know, where am I putting my cranes for lighting? Where are stunts putting their cranes? Where are we putting all this stuff? And when you have the previs to kind of show people, then you can also input logistically maps where you can see where different objects are going so that everyone knows where their gear is going to go and it helps execute things more seamlessly. And Yeah, so I find that that was really great to do two projects in a row and
2: see how useful that tool was. Autumn, you talked about lighting playing the role of a character in a movie or a show. And to a certain degree, the camera itself can be that character or it can be an accelerant of the emotional experience. You're thinking about something like 1917 when that came out, a lot of people were really paying attention to the way it was shot, whereas maybe most movies they might not have because it was technically it wasn't a continuous shot, but it felt like a continuous shot. And with a movie like Wakanda Forever, that is so emotional, you know, with Chadwick Boseman's passing. I wonder how you thought about framing differently in light of that kind of shift that. You know, there's a pall upon the narrative there. How did you use framing and shots to shape emotion?
0: We tested, because the first one, Ryan shot spherically, which is a different format than anamorphic, which I tend to shoot. And he did widescreen, but just different lensing. And the reasons behind that were different from this time around. And I had heard, because... His previous cinematographer, I'm great friends with, when she was unable to shoot the film she's now directing, she was directing a film, and the schedule's conflicted, she mentioned to me, she's like, I think Ryan wants to shoot this one on anamorphic, or he's interested in it. And that already excited me, because she knew that I shoot anamorphically a lot, and I wasn't sure if he wanted to use the same format on the second one. So starting from that point of view, your whole world looks and feels different. And the type of anamorphics that I like to shoot on are very vintage feeling, very soft, very feminine, I would like to say. And so when I showed him these lenses in our test, our kind of, we did a hair and makeup test, he responded very quickly. And they were in line with kind of what he spoke to me about early on, about just the relationship between mother and daughter and the strong female protagonists this time around in the film and, you know, the loss that they were dealing with. And so all of those different things kind of spoke to me in, in this set of lens that I presented in the test. And so one of the lenses was this lens I love to use, this 35 millimeter B series anamorphic from Panavision. And Ryan loved it. And after that, he said, this is the lens of our movie. And if you watch the film, you understand what that means because there are these sequences where, you know, you have people that are dealing with all of this grief and we center punch them and we're a little bit below the eye line, and you can just, it feels right. Like when I frame or when I light, I always know when it feels right. I don't know how to explain that in a technically broken down way, but I'm on set and I generally operate. And if I'm not operating, I'm very specific in kind of how low or high the camera should be and at which angle, especially when someone's emoting and, or say it's a scene where it's very important and they're crying or you know, it's a pivotal scene in the movie. And so Ryan and I find that together because you're always presenting the director with like, this is where I feel it should be. And you know, they give you notes or it ends up landing in the perfect spot. And then everyone kind of agrees, right? Because everyone's watching the scene and you just feel it. It always feels right when it's in the right spot for those filmmakers, obviously, because everyone's different. But yeah, I think this time around, you know, he fell in love with that lens and it's one of my favorite lenses. It was kind of our hero lens. Whenever there was an important close-up to be had, we would use this 35 millimeter. And, you know, I shoot so much with this format that the lighting also is affected by this type of lens. It's a much softer lens. It flares differently. And so he really appreciated that. And again, I think for me, it's like you're on these sets and when you shoot a certain format so consistently, I kind of see everything in that without having a camera on my face. Like I can walk on a set, and already know where I want to do the wide shot from because I see everything in (laughs) anamorphic. It's a bit weird to explain, but it is true. And so, yeah, I think this time around, it was just important for me to kind of really show these women as strong characters dealing with this loss and having to rise up and take care of their country and take care of their family after such a huge loss and look beautiful and be presented as strong females. And I think that was the most important and these lenses and, and the lighting, you know, it was in line with that kind of agenda.
1: Autumn, as we come close to wrapping up here, I'm interested, you mentioned some movies that inspired you early on, like Broadway, Danny Rose, which I also love great movie. And I'm curious, are there other, and they can be old movies, more recent movies, but are there any other movies that have really inspired you through their cinematography, storytelling, anything like that?
0: yeah. Hannah and Her Sisters, another Woody Allen film. I used to watch a lot of Woody Allen growing up because my mom loved Woody Allen, like (laughs) his his films. My parents (laughs) did. And it was weird because I remember being like, oh, you know, like, I don't understand this. (laughs) And I'd watch it. And I think it was just beyond me back then because I was little. And then I started having such an appreciation for it like as I got older, especially when I took that film course and his collaborations with Gordon Willis, who's one of my favorite cinematographers. And so I'm sure it has to do with the fact that I was watching it previously and it stayed in the back of my mind. And then when I kind of my age met up with my understanding of human emotions and complex situations and relationships, I decided I thought it was amazing. But yeah, that film I think has always been it's just so beautiful and how it's framed and it's very minimalist in kind of its compositions and storytelling. You know, there's not a lot of coverage. People are moving from point A to point B in, in the city and in relationships. And you see that traveling across the frame and you see how he frames certain wide shots and they all make sense and everything in the frame has purpose. And it's just a very kind of beautiful film and the way he writes his female characters, the sisters in that film. And some of the shots that they devise, like one of my favorite shots is they're having lunch with each other and the camera kind of travels in a circle around the table and sometimes the camera's on the person that's listening to the other character and sometimes it passes by the character that's talking and you can see the reaction instead of seeing the person that's delivering the line. And he's very clever and I found a lot of those moments in his films early on so I tried to kind of replicate that when I would get a shot in my indie films because I find that I like... I don't always like that, you know, maybe a character is in the light. I like characters in the shadows. I don't always think that a character that's speaking needs to be on camera. And, you know, those types of things resonate with me. So, yeah, I I have a a big appreciation for that. And there have just been so many times, I think, now when I make films that I don't put myself in a position to watch as many films or go to the theater, which is unfortunate, right? Because you're just always shooting. (laughs) So I have to kind of seek out stuff nowadays that I appreciate. Or like if someone's telling me, I probably tend to watch a little bit more TV than I used to because it's something I can digest quickly, episodic. But I saw a series recently called Beef. I'm not sure if you have saw that. Heard of it, yeah. Yeah, and it was amazing. And I know the cinematographer and I'm a big fan of his work. And it was fresh and new for me because I think there's not as many shows out there that I feel like show kind of the Asian family experience. And I'm half Asian and with Asian protagonists and, you know, lead male and female. And they just knocked out the park. And the storytelling, I thought, was very interesting, clever and fresh and new. And, you know, some scenes were just crazy circumstances that these characters found themselves in. But I think that's something that resonated with me recently. And I felt like it spoke to me because I'm not always seeing that, culture represented on the screen, like in a broad kind of streaming show, or at least I don't find that. So it was really nice. I enjoyed that a lot.
2: Autumn what's next for you?
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really, it's an interesting time. I'm sure you know about all the strikes yeah. and I'm very lucky that I also work in commercials. My husband's also a cinematographer and he does movies and commercials as well. And so it's nice to work at home. We live in Los Angeles and we also have a son. So when we're able to do commercials and be in town, because a lot of the movies that we make are generally not in Los Angeles, they're out of state or out of country. But with the strikes, I have been able to work and, you know, we're very lucky to work. Even if it's selling products, it's still filmmaking and collaborating with really cool people. But yeah, we're just doing that right now until we find out what happens with the WGA and, and the SAG strike. My next film is with Gia Coppola, she's someone I've worked with my whole career. One of my first films I did with her called Palo Alto. And, you know, we made that for a very small amount of money and in a short time frame and it did really well. And we have done a second film, her second film we did a couple of years ago or a few years ago. And now this is her third film and we're just waiting to kind of get back. We've done some prep and some scouts and stuff for it, but we can't
2: start shooting until the strikes are over. Well, Autumn, thank you so much for joining us on Design Better.
0: You're welcome. Thank you so much. I think it's nice that you guys are speaking to various people, but at the end of the day, you know, design and composition and creativity is, we all have like-minded kind of conversations anyway, so it's nice.
2: In
1: this episode of Office Hours from Design Better, we're speaking with Josepha Hayden Ciamposi, Executive Director of the WordPress project at Automatic. Josepha shares what it's like to work on one of the largest open source projects in the world, 40% of the web runs on WordPress, and how the distributed team at Automatic creates unique opportunities for employees to live a life on their terms.
4: My name is Josefa Hayden-Champosi, and I am the general manager of our open source division at Automatic, but I also serve as the executive director of the WordPress open source project. Firstly, it's probably important to mention that WordPress is a FOSS project, a free and open source software project. And so that refers to a couple of different requirements in it. One, that it be freely licensed, and the other, that the source code is openly shared. It's not proprietary. And so on that side, there's a real collaborative approach to software development, where the community of contributors all work together to create and improve and maintain not only the software, but also the ecosystem that has grown up around the software and the community that supports it as well. My work as the executive director of the WordPress Open Source Project entails A lot of contributor management, like recruitment, retention, but also helping to make sure that we have a roadmap, making sure that our tools are working, making sure that anyone who does want to contribute to the project knows how to get started doing that. And once they've started, how to make sure that they feel like they are recognized enough, seen enough that they want to stay around. Automatic as a company, is built using open source philosophies. That's at the heart of what started the company and why it runs the way it runs. But the thing about Automatic and the WordPress open source project that was so different for me was the way that they held, like these organizations hold, entirely different concepts of what cross-cultural work is and where their cultural boundaries are. Working in an office versus working in a distributed way, those are two separate types of office cultures. And so knowing how to work between those and through those cultural boundaries is really important. And we also do have a global workforce. And so you have an opportunity every day to see some new and interesting interaction between groups that you have always had to work with kind of in your career, but never really had to like sit down and work with as other human beings tackling the same problem. For me as a leader, the things that I have learned here and how to apply them at a really substantial scale, like over the course of the year, we interact with at some level about 10,000 contributors. And so learning how to make all of that work in such a malleable and ever-changing context was just so fascinating to me. In my experience in Automatic, we kind of look for people who follow the leadership at any level concept. Like I can lead from wherever I am because leading is an activity, not an assignment. It's not a title. It is a way that I be, a way that I act and how I do things. One of the unique advantages is that we are fully distributed, so you can work from wherever you are. And that is both like wherever you currently live, or if you decide one day that you want to just travel around the world in a van, as long as your van has excellent Wi-Fi, then you can work it automatic. And I think that that's one of those really cool benefits. And then the opportunity to ship small but meaningful changes that will affect 40 plus percent of the web. WordPress, when it decided that responsive images was just going to be its default treatment of images, that Didn't affect 40% of the web. I think that we were like at 18 at the time, but it was such a substantial number of sites that then it started to be seen as a requirement for the way that we handle media on the web. And I think that's really cool. Like if you are thinking about how to leave the world in a better place, then you found it. And if you're thinking about how to secure the open web for the future, Automatic is a great place to do it.
1: To learn more about working with Automatic, including current job opportunities go to dbtr.co slash automatic that's dbtr.co slash a-u-t-o-m-a-t-t-i-c
2: Eli and I love producing this podcast but sometimes we find ourselves wondering what sort of feedback does our audience have how could we improve the show Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.